Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is James Carden. He is a former State Department advisor, the executive editor of the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord, co-founded by the late Stephen F. Cohen, and he writes at thescrum.substack.com. James, making your Pushback debut. Very excited to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. Nice to see you. So let's talk about the Biden-Putin summit, a lot of hype around it. What were your key takeaways from their relatively uh, brief meeting? Well, my key takeaway is that it could have been worse. Um, there are a number of pretty good things that came out of it. Um, the first thing I guess I'd point to was the overall uh, tone um, between, the, between the two presidents. It wasn't marked uh, by overt hostility. Um, nor kind of slavish deference. Um, I was just on a um, Zoom conference sponsored by the Quincy Institute in which former governor Jerry Brown said that both presidents acted as professionals and as human beings. And that was a significant step forward. And I think Governor Brown is right about that. So there's tone. And then there were some actual, um, in the parlance of the foreign policy bureaucracy, some deliverables um, that came out of it. Uh, the first and probably most important uh, was the announcement of a bilateral um, strategic stabi stability dialogue. Um, both presidents said there was an agreement to begin negotiations around issues of uh, cyber. Um, both presidents um, repeated the pledge that President Reagan and um, uh, Prime Minister, no, excuse me, President Gorbachev made in 1980, uh, 1985 at Geneva, uh, in which they declared that a nuclear war uh, can never be won and should never be fought. Um, and finally, um, both sides um, agree to send back their ambassadors. Uh, both ambassadors um, have had been recalled to their respective capitals uh, since the springtime. So. You know that's the positive side of 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 the of the ledger, and um, so I think you know for the most part, uh, not bad. What are the key issues where it will require some courage, some actual courage, and some spending of political capital by Joe Biden to overcome the hawks that dominate the D.C. foreign policy establishment? He already took one step in that direction when he overruled people like his Tony Blinken and Victoria Nuland in his own State Department in dropping these Trump sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which was an attempt to thwart the, the completion of this key pipeline between Russia and Germany. But so what is next? What will be, what will be Biden's next test when it comes to actually uh, improving relations with Russia and showing some political spine to bring that about? Right. Well, I think, you know, in a way he showed plenty of spine um, yesterday and in, in not only, as you as you say, um, probably overruling his more hawkish advisors like Jake Sullivan and, and Victoria Newland and Wendy Sherman and Anthony Blinken. Um, but um, I think that, you know, he if he's going to spend a lot of political capital on Russia, which I don't necessarily think he will. Uh, but if he did choose to do so, um, you know, you have to address the underlying issue um, between the between the two countries. And the underlying issue 
in Europe is really a NATO expansion. Um, and, and, and if we're going to get to an even better place with Russia, we have to recognize that um, NATO expansion and uh, pledges to bring in uh, Ukraine and Georgia into the alliance are really at the, at the root of a lot of the problems that we've been having. Uh, I don't expect uh, Joe Biden to do that, but um, we're eventually going to have to come to that point. Eventually, we're going to have to uh, reach out uh, to the Russians and um, begin negotiations over a kind of grand settlement um, with regard to Ukraine. And I think it's it's very straightforward. We pledge not to bring Ukraine or Georgia into the alliance, and they they get out of the Donbas region in Ukraine, um, which they really don't want to be in in the first place. I know people don't believe that, but that is the case. And um, and so you have the makings of a, of a grand bargain there. Um, but I don't expect that to occur under a Biden administration, though, who knows? No one expected Ronald Reagan to end the Cold War. So we, we may be surprised. Well, you know, I don't want to get into history, but couldn't you argue that the Cold War would have ended a lot earlier had presidents like Reagan not built up the U.S. Uh, nuclear stockpile, you know, forcing Russia to then build up its own? Yeah, yeah, perhaps. I mean, um, but on the other hand, if you look back through the history of the Cold War, uh, it has been it was Republican presidents who were the ones pursuing a policy of detente, beginning with Eisenhower, continuing uh, through with um, with Nixon and then to Reagan. Um, the Democrats have always embraced the kind of Truman Atchison um, philosophy of taking a very hard line towards the Soviet Union. And that is Unfortunately, that tradition has carried over uh, to our present day, and I think explains a lot of the um, grotesque hysteria that has marked democratic discourse with regard to all things involving uh, Putin and Russia. Yeah, so on this front, you had this recent controversy with the Biden administration where, so you have him on the one hand appointing people like Tony Blinken, who's a hawk on Russia, Victoria Nuland, instrumental in the disaster that has pl helped plunge U.S.-Russia relations to a historic low with, you know, the coup, the Maidan coup in Ukraine in 2014. So he has, he, he, so Biden brings in those people. Meanwhile, there was some, there was talk that this uh, Russia expert named Matthew Rajansky was going to be considered for a top position on the National Security Council. The Hawks in Washington freaked out and that, potential candidacy was voided. He was no longer considered. Can you comment on that and, and what that says about the Biden administration's overall approach to Russia today? Yeah, the Rojansky incident was, I think, very, very, very telling. Um, I, I knew Matt a little bit and I respect Matt as a, as a, as a scholar and as a person, he's a very decent um, human being. But um, the idea that Matt Rajansky is some sort of threat to the foreign policy establishment in Washington uh, is utterly ludicrous. So if someone who has expressed the most mild criticisms of the foreign policy establishment is ruled out of bounds, um, I'm afraid that um, it just shows that there's no room for really any sort of dissent um, 
in Washington. Um, so, um, you know, and I, I suspect that, you know, the, the signal has been, that, that was kind of a signal to everyone else who wants a job to kind of get in line and get with the program because um, Matt Rajansky is no Steve Cohen. Uh, you know, he, he, he did not, you know, um, dissent very forcefully uh, from, uh, from the establishment line. Um, so anyway, I think that that was, um, that was a, a, a warning sent by the, by the blob uh, to the rest of us. So let me ask you about Syria. It didn't really come up in the news reporting on the summit that I saw, but before Biden departed for the summit, he made this bizarre comment about Syria at a news conference where he confused Libya and Syria like three times. And that got a lot of headlines. But aside from that, the implications of that, him confusing Syria and Libya, there was what he actually said about possibly reaching a deal with Russia on Syria. And I saw both uh, maybe a positive sign that he was talking about engaging with Russia on Syria and reaching some sort of settlement on an issue where the U.S. right now is occupying one third of Syria and imposing the harshest sanctions in the world that are preventing Syria from rebuilding. But then he also seemed to suggest, and maybe you have a different take, that, you know, the humanitarian suffering of the Syrian people, the fact that they Syria can't provide for its people fully right now because they're under such dire conditions, is a point of U.S. leverage. So let me play the clip for you and get your response. Where um, we could work together with Russia, for example, uh, in, uh, in Libya, we should be opening up the, 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 the passes to be able to go through and provide, uh, provide uh, um, food assistance and economic assistance, I mean, vital assistance to uh, a population that's in real trouble. I think I'm going to try very much hard to, uh, it, it is, and by the way, there's places where I shouldn't be starting off and negotiating in public here, but let me say it this way. Russia has engaged in activities which are, we believe are contrary to international norms, but they have also um, uh, bitten off some real problems they're going to have trouble chewing on. And, for example, the rebuilding of, uh, of, uh, of Syria, of, uh, of Libya, of, you know, this is, they're there. And as long as they're there without the ability to bring about some order in the, in the region, and you can't do that very well without providing for the basic economic needs of people. So I'm hopeful that we can find an accommodation that where we can save the lives of people in, for example, in uh, in Libya. James Carden, what did you make of this comment? Uh, hardly enlightening. Uh, I think that he was uh, probably confused, as you suggested, between Libya uh, and Syria. Um, so I think he probably meant Libya because um, it, it's been reported in recent days that French President Macron is trying to uh, get a multilateral uh, group uh, together to deal with the uh, situation in Libya. Um, I would find it hard to believe that he meant Syria uh, because it would be a non-starter on Capitol Hill, um, particularly because um, of some of the legislation that's been aimed at Syria, particularly the, the Caesar Act that was sponsored by um, Elliot Engel. 
uh, I think that would preclude um, cooperation with Russia uh, on uh, in rebuilding Syria. So I suspect that he meant Libya. Um, always amused when an American president and someone like Joe Biden, who's been in public life for five decades, um, talks about violating international norms. Um, so, you know, uh, so, you know, while he seems to have made some, some, some progress, you know, in, in the summit meeting with Putin, uh, old, old rhetorical habits die hard. And let me ask you about some of the media coverage. There was so much excitement in the U.S. media about the spectacle of all these reporters confronting Putin, asking about Navalny, confronting Biden, saying to him, like, when are you going to punish Putin for his bad behavior? Is if Russia is just some giant child and the U.S. is the uh, is the parent that disciplines yeah. Russia for behavior that it deems to be untoward. But what I found funny about the media aspect of this is that, you know, multiple U.S. European outlets were allowed to ask Biden questions and, you know, hostile questions, whereas, sorry, they're allowed to ask Putin hostile questions, whereas Biden didn't take one question from a Russian outlet, except perhaps the U.S. government funded Russian outlet uh, in, 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 in Europe. And he spoke for about half the time as Putin did. Well, Putin is used to these long kind of things, right? I, around the end of the year, I think it's around the end of the year, every year, um, he does these kind of marathon call-in uh, shows. Um, and they go on and on and on. And he takes calls from the public and the press. Uh, he's used to it. And, he, um, you know, he's very good on his feet. Um, you know, Joe Biden is, is older. He's in obvious cognitive uh, decline. And he was really never that good on his feet anyway. Um, you know, the press coverage is is interesting. I, I think you're right. Um, Putin took, I think, seven questions from American outlets uh, and Biden took none uh, from 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 the Russian outlets. But, you know, that's just kind of kind of superficial. Um, the the real kind of problem with with the with the coverage is that the American media outlets seem to be egging Biden on uh, to take a harder line than than the president than the president wanted to, um, which is sort of, um, a, a, I guess it's a product of the last several years of Russiagate hysteria. Uh, but it also shows um, that the people in the, who make up the American press really don't know that much about Russia or foreign policy. Um, and, you know, um, you see this, you know, all the time, you know, you, you mentioned Navalny, right? So like even a, even a halfway decent, um, halfway decent outlet, like the financial times, you know, their headline today, I'm reading off of it, um, was Biden warns Putin of devastating repercussions if Navalny dies in jail. Okay. Um, I don't really think that Biden meant that if Navalny dies in jail, we're going to launch a nuclear strike. I think what he probably meant was if Navalny dies in jail, Congress and the media is going to go absolutely crazy and I'm not going to be able to do anything with you. You know, so, you know, it's going to tie my hands and, you know, to, 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 in order to do the things that, you know, we said that we're going to do. Um, so, you know, that stuff has just become par for the course. It's, it's, 
it's depressing, but I guess, you know, um, it's not going to change anytime soon. Well, speaking of depressing, just to illustrate how far to the right U.S. media has gone, let's take an example from a leading progressive outlet. They did an interview um, on Democracy Now! with Masha Gessen, a, a Russian-American journalist. And it was just one of the most chauvinist interviews I've ever seen on that show, uh, especially. But to me, it just illustrated the extent to which, you know, our media has been captured by Russiagate, where you have even people at the leading end of the dissenting spectrum going along with it. And Masha Gessen said that it was wrong even to put Vladimir Putin on TV. Then we spend uh, 10, 15 minutes trying to dissect that uh, that propaganda trope and, 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 and trying to find a kernel of truth in something that is designed to obscure truth is a reason why we shouldn't be putting dictators on national television. That uh, Biden was going into the summit with uh, the aim of finding areas of cooperation, but not Putin. Biden is concerned in the sort of standard American idiom um, with deliverables, with uh, finding areas of common interest. And he's alone in that. He's alone in actually trying to negotiate in good faith. And she even made a comment that I just thought was so just straight up bigoted about about her, her native country, Russia, where she said that Russians don't value human life. But I think another reason that they are not taking the vaccine is because of the general sort of culture of a lack of respect for human life, which is also characteristic of this particular government. Uh, under Putin, human life is worthless. So that's Masha Gessen speaking on Democracy Now! And she's talking about why she thinks there's been a low vaccination rate in Russia or a relatively low vaccination rate in Russia. She says that it's because Russia doesn't have a respect for human life. And I just thought that the fact that that could pass without challenge on a leading progressive show just illustrates the extent to which Russiagate has normalized Russophobia in the U.S. Yeah, but you're not really surprised democracy now let that go, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, even just, but you'd expect maybe a challenge at uh, least, something. Uh, no, I get it. I mean, Gessen's comment is kind of the worst kind of marriage of pop psychology and neoconservative bloodlust. Um, and that's what characterizes um, liberal coverage of Russia and has for the past several years. I don't know what, you know, Gessen has had this sort of Putin obsession long before 2016. Um, and, you know, she, write, she wrote a book about Putin years ago called Man Without a Face. And, you know, she recounts meeting him and he actually offered her a job in Russian state media. So I don't know what the grudge is, but <laughs> um, you find this a lot in, you know, diaspora communities, right? Um, and the coverage in the United States, the narrative is shaped in large part by people who um, have some kind of axe, ideological axe to grind with Russia because um, they just got here or their parents or grandparents. And so um, it, it, it's shaped by people who are, uh, who have for whatever reason, um, very, very hostile towards it. And so 
they've been able to kind of hijack the narrative and frankly um, hijack US national security uh, and, and turn it around uh, and use it to their own, their own ends. I mean, you have people like Julia Yaffe and Max Boot um, and Apple and Applebaum to an extent is like that. Um, and then you have people who aren't media stars, but who are very wealthy and influential, um, like the hedge fund manager, William Browder. Uh, you know, William Browder is an American trader. He comes from a long line of uh, American traders, beginning with his grandfather, Earl. Uh, Browder, um, uh, you know, renounced his American citizenship uh, for tax purposes. So he's not an American citizen, uh, but, you know, his views uh, have been very influential uh, in Congress. And he's managed to turn what is a personal uh, grudge against Vladimir Putin because Putin hurt his business interests into this sort of phony human rights crusade. Um, and so, you know, it's a problem, but you find this, you know, in, with people, you know, in diaspora communities from Cuba in the United States, you know, they have way too much to say about U.S. policy to Cuba. You see that with the, with these conservatives uh, who have fled Venezuela as well. I, I know that you guys have covered that. Yeah, Syria, Syria too. It was a, Syria is a great example. China. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they're not unique, but, you know, um, you know, let's call it for what it is, right? I mean, they, they are, uh, they have their own personal problems with Russia uh, or the Soviet Union or what happened under Yeltsin or what happened under Putin. Um, and they are trying to um, hijack U.S. national security aims for their own self-interest. So I think it's despicable. And I'm personally right now feeling the absence of Stephen F. Cohen, who we both knew he was such a prominent voice on U.S.-Russia relations. And whenever there were big media events like this, summits like this, I mean, he was the voice of reason. And what was amazing is that he was able to, you know, air it to a large number of people because he was just that, his credentials were that impeccable. And his experience, you know, both directly advising the first President Bush and the fact that he had such a high stature in the academy, Professor Emeritus at Princeton and NYU, allowed him to break through. And of course, that was marginalized in his last years when he was so forcefully outspoken on the Maidan coup in Ukraine, on Russia's intervention in Syria to prevent, in the words of John Kerry, ISIS from, from taking over Syria. And then finally on Russiagate. Uh, he certainly, there was an attempt to minimize him, but still, he reached a lot of people. So I'm just wondering... If you have thoughts on that and, you know, your your thoughts on how he'd be viewing this moment right now. Well, of course, he also had a sideline in journalism. He worked for CBS and he covered the very important summits um, in 1985 in Geneva between Reagan and Gorbachev in 19, uh, eight, 19 I think it was 1990 in Malta. Uh, between uh, Bush and Gorbachev. Um, and of course, he was very great friends with, with Gorbachev. So um, yeah, it's hard not to think of Steve when, um, when a US-Russian uh, summit occurs. And I think that, um, I think for the most part, he you know, would have been probably pleased by the mature tone that, um, that Biden and Putin took with one another and the um, Small, but, you know, not insignificant uh, progress that was made. 
All right. So as we wrap going forward, what are you looking towards in terms of uh, U.S.-Russia relations next? What do you think will be the issues that are going to be negotiated? And what do you see as the upcoming potential flashpoints? The question is, will Biden be undermined by his own bureaucracy? Right. This is something that we saw um, under the last uh, two presidents, um, Obama and Trump. Um, that was really obvious under Trump. So, you know, will the small steps that were made towards um, coming to an understanding or modus vivendi over, uh, you know, cyber warfare, uh, n- nuclear weapons, uh, strategic stability, um, even the um, the you know reinstitution of consular services in both countries, right? Will these very good initiatives be undermined by the hawks that Biden has put in almost every single position throughout his administration. So I think that's something that we're going to have to watch very closely. James Carden is a former State Department official, the executive editor for the American Committee for U.S.-Russia Accord, and he writes at the scrum.substack.com. James, thanks a lot. Aaron, thanks. Thanks.